This week's episode of Pro Se is brought to you by CaseFleet. What's more important than knowing the facts of your case inside and out? That's where CaseFleet comes in. CaseFleet's revolutionary and easy-to-use software makes it easy to create a chronology of each case and track the evidence for each fact. With an intuitive interface, full-text search, and built-in document review, CaseFleet makes fact management easy. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at casefleet.com law360 and get 10% off your first subscription. Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. Amber McKinney is out this week. I am your host, Alex Lawson, and with me as always, my co-host, Bill Donahue. Bill, how are you? Hello, hello. I'm doing okay. Uh, we've got we've got no guests this week. We've got no Amber this week. Our pets' heads are falling off. <laughs> uh, yes. It's just it's just us. This it's is gonna be us. this is gonna be great. <laughs> yeah. Um, we got some interesting news stories to go over. I wanted to bounce something off you that occurred to me while I was watching baseball yesterday, and I think we got some rope here. We don't have Amber. We can sort of indulge in some baseball sports law. Mm -hmm. So did you see what happened with the Cardinals and the White Sox yesterday, where the guy on the Cardinals had something on his hat, and they took away the hat? Sure. I mean, this is part of a big, you know, ongoing story about illegal substances on the baseball by pitchers. It made me think, though, because they they made this, uh, I think it was Giovanni Gallegos was the Cardinals pitcher's name. Great name. Great name. Uh, And they took away his hat and made him wear another one, but they kept him in the game. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, whatever, you know, in my day, I'm I'm now an old baseball salt. I just thought you got ejected for stuff like that. And I don't know if it has to do with your saying, like, they're they're putting this new emphasis on it. Yeah, they... they yeah, it, they released it, a memo earlier this year that said that they were going to do stuff like this, where they would, uh, you know, confiscate materials, and um, mm. they were going to look at spin rates to see ah. if if you know things had changed. So, I think that the I think they're taking a soft touch because they know that like three quarters of the league is cheating, and <laughs> they have to come up with a way to do it that doesn't just like summarily you know, suspend the first person they catch. So yeah. I think it's a delicate situation. Well, the reason that I bring about that, that I bring it up here on our legal podcast is beca- because of the thing you just said, it, it like, because I have, as has been established, like severely broken legal reporter brain, it made me think of like different types of civil procedure. Whereas before you would just get tossed for doing something like that here, uh, we sort of put an injunction on you using this piece of equipment, sure, and we allow the rest of the game to play out uh, I, while we uh, sort of keep the evidentiary record clean. I thought the remedy should have been he just had to pitch <laughs> the remainder of the inning no without hat. any hat. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Then and the 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 penalty is that he looks like a doofus. Yeah. Right. It's like, hey man, where's your hat, bro? Where's your hat, man? No. The uh, the guy who was I was listening to the Sox feed, and there was the reason that it. This idea got in my head. I think it was Steve Stone said they they originally were going to throw the hat into the Cardinals clubhouse, and it's they like, originally Whoa. were going to throw the hat into the fires of Mount Doom. <laughs> well, no, they were going to give it to the Cardinals clubhouse, and Steve Stone was like, "Now wait a minute, we can't taint the evidence here. They can't. Sure. We got to keep a clean evidentiary record." So clearly, uh, you know, civil and criminal procedure infects uh, every piece of behavior that I engage in, even uh, <laughs> casually watching a baseball game right. on a on a Wednesday afternoon. 
Uh, well, um, yeah. I mean, we could talk about baseball for the we, whole show. We definitely uh, could, and we'll talk about soccer a little bit later. Uh, right, uh, I think indirectly, be, I think we would be we would be penalized ourselves if we did that, though. Yeah, um, we would have our hats taken away. As yes, you, probably, <laughs> if you will. Yes. Um, but uh, let's get to the news. I mean, the first yes. story that we're going to talk about this week is uh, the lawsuit that was filed by the D.C. Attorney General against Amazon. Um, uh, it's an antitrust lawsuit claiming that Amazon, uh, that they they employed various agreements and practices that raised prices on everyone, sort of leveraging their, you know, I don't think I need to tell anyone, their enormous position in the, yeah. the world of online retail. Um, it's interesting, sort of, you know, within the four corners of the case itself, but I think it's more interesting in terms of where it is in this sort of trend of... Uh, these cases and this re- sort of general regulatory, whatever you want to call it, scrutiny of yeah. of uh, Silicon Valley. Yeah, I mean, depending on who you talk to, there's like a there's an antitrust, you know, big tech dragnet going on, um, which we'll get into that part uh, later on, and that's come up on past episodes. But um, let's break down this Amazon lawsuit specifically. Um, what is it? Uh, it was like you say, filed by the DCAG. What does it actually say? Yeah, so DC's attorney general, uh, a guy named Carl Racine, uh, he filed the case on Tuesday, and it claims that Amazon exploited its dominant position in the world of online retail to force sellers to agree to these anti-competitive provisions, agreements. Um, Specifically, the suit claims that Amazon forced vendors to agree to uh, what they call and what the suit defines as um, a quote price parity provision, which is essentially a most favored nations clause. It it, yeah. it forces anyone who wants to sell on Amazon, um, it it forces them to agree to not sell their products on other platforms at lower prices or on better terms than they sold them on Amazon. That yeah, um, that includes uh, on their own websites, which is something that was highlighted in a lot of stories this week on the lawsuit, um, because it seems I think particularly unfair. Uh, the suit says that this, um, you know, it obviously raises prices on other platforms. Like if you, you know, if 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 yeah. somebody wants to sell on Amazon, they can't do it without um, uh, at lower prices. Then everyone else is going to be selling at the same price that something appears on Amazon. Yeah. Um, th- the claim is that that gives Amazon an an unfair edge, and um, in the process, it all it obviously hurts the vendors who have to raise prices, and it ultimately hurts consumers who have. Um, you know, they don't have price choice and that raises their prices. The quote, Amazon has used its dominant position in the online retail market to win at all costs. It maximizes its profits at the expense of third-party sellers and consumers while harming competition, stifling innovation, and illegally tilting the playing field in its favor. So um, it's it's an interesting case. It's, um, you know, I, I don't think that a, a random person would, would really understand go, before you would read something like this that... Uh, that you know, Amazon imposes these restrictions. You might think they charge fees or whatever, yeah. but they literally had an agreement in their in their you know um, vendor uh, agreements that that yeah. said if you are selling on other platforms, it has to be the same price or higher than what you charge on Amazon. Yeah, you set a new price floor, but I thought, and I you know I follow it maybe closer than the average person, but I but I know that this can get a little weedy. What 
I thought I remembered that they got rid of these these price floor mandates at some point. Yeah, but that's is that like a, a mitigating issue here or what? So that's the that's the interesting wrinkle here that Amazon stopped using these um, price parity provisions in Europe uh, a few years back after coming under antitrust scrutiny. There, Europe is often um, sort of more on the cutting edge yeah. with this stuff, um, scrutinizing these big American tech Definitely. companies, and. Um, uh, it's uh, Amazon stopped using them in the U.S. as well back in 2019 after facing similar pressure from Congress and from regulators. But what this suit says is that that was really just a change in the name of what they called these things. That, Classic. Um, Amazon replaced it with uh, a very, very similar thing that they call um, fair pricing policy, which it allows the company to impose penalties on companies that offer lower prices elsewhere and you know not favor them in terms of uh, various ways that they appear on the website and the lawsuit says that in effect it has the same result as the old rule well i'll certainly look forward if this if this case gets legs and amazon you know when it has to file sort of substantive defense motions i i can only imagine they'll say you know you can't say this is unfair pricing methods it's a fair pricing policy that's what this <laughs> says um, but uh, anyway, they, that's I'm joking, of course. What did, did did they have any sort of even initial response to this? Yeah, I mean, they re- they released a statement. They obviously disagree with the the thrust of this lawsuit. I mean, yeah. they, they, you know, you were sort of joking about it, but that is basically what they were saying that that they were sort of trying to maintain reasonable pricing. They weren't using this to restrain trade. Um, the 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 statement they issued on Tuesday said that the attorney general's case has it quote exactly backwards. Um, and mm-hmm. that that um, sellers themselves set the prices and that these are just sort of general guidelines. The quote from Amazon. Amazon takes pride in the fact that we offer low prices across the broadest selection. And like any store, we reserve the right not to highlight offers to customers that are not priced competitively. The relief the AG seeks would force Amazon to feature higher prices to customers, oddly going against the core objectives of antitrust law. Yeah, so I mean, it'll be interesting to see where this one goes. But as we already kind of indicated, it is just one piece of a pretty large puzzle. Where does this fit into the broader scope of what's going on with antitrust regulation um, for, uh, for 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 big tech? Yeah, it's the third big antitrust case we've seen in the last uh, you know six months, and yeah. um, it, it's part of what appears to be a growing consensus, a seemingly bipartisan consensus. That something needs to be done here, that that there needs to be regulations or there needs to be more scrutiny in some way about these companies that that have this huge presence, you know, that, mm-hmm. that they, they play a big part in our lives. And perhaps that means that they deserve a bit more scrutiny. Um, yeah. in, in October, the DOJ hit Google with a, um, a, a pretty sweeping case that accused it of maintaining an illegal monopoly over internet search and online advertising, doing things like um, getting these exclusive deals to be um, the search default on iPhones, things like that, sort of leveraging their position to maintain it. Um, in December, the, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, I should say, uh, yeah. and nearly every state in the country filed a case against Facebook um, that accused the company of using acquisitions to stifle competition. They pointed to the deals uh, to buy Instagram and WhatsApp, sort of these nascent competitors that then Facebook had bought up and mm-hmm. you know removed from the market. Um, all of these cases are infinitely complex and will take a long time. And these companies obviously have deep pockets and will fight these things tooth and nail. Um, but the key here is is sort of the trend or the big picture. You know, when you unfocus yeah. your eyes... 
you can see this growing sort of um, drumbeat to to take a closer look, whether it's these civil lawsuits, whether it's regulations, to take a closer look at how these companies operate. The next story will head uh, north in the Acela Corridor from D.C. to New York City, where um, a uh, small uh, securities class action boutique called Robbins Geller, that firm uh, was booted off a fairly high-profile case that stems from uh, soccer's FIFA corruption scandal. That happened last week after the court found that the firm had filed misleading statements that, uh, in the eyes of the court, amounted to a definition of fraud. Um, this is a little bit involved, like a lot of securities class actions are, but basically what you need to know is that uh, Robbins Geller was representing this investor that claimed to have lost money as a result of this corruption scandal. Uh, when in fact it turned out that the company had actually made quite a bit of money from the same scandal. And uh, just a little back-of-the-envelope securities law will tell you that'll get you thrown off a class action uh, really quick. And it's uh, kind, of a, kind of a wonky case, so I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't run a law firm, as you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but if I did, this is not what I would want to happen no. to my law firm, to my hypothetical law firm. Um, no. No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Okay, so there's a lot of there's a lot of sort of threads here. I mean, the corruption scandal is its own whole thing. Um, yeah. But uh, lay out sort of what was happening here in this lawsuit that led up to this. Yeah, the phrase like FIFA corruption scandal has kind of just like seeped into everyone's collective yeah. brain, and I like there's there are varying levels of active litigation over it. But this is this is kind of interesting. So the case we're talking about today is it was brought by a bunch of companies that had invested in the. Uh, Mexican media company called Grupo Televisa, which has been accused of paying bribes to secure broadcast rights for the World Cup. And now the scandal is there's been a bunch of litigation. People have gone to jail. Um, a lot of that stuff is still going on. But all we're talking about here are these investors who say that the company's stock tanked after the bribery scandal broke. And from there, it takes the shape of a basic securities class sure. action. I have invested in your company. Your company did something bad. The stock price tanked. And now we're all going to sue you. So that's what's going on here. The suit against Grupo Televisa. And Robbins Geller is a, a fairly well-respected firm in this uh, space. And they were selected as lead plaintiff's counsel. And the proposed lead plaintiff was a Canadian pension fund that is called... Uh, the Colleges of Applied Arts and Technology Pension Plan. Uh, for the purposes of this, we're just going to call them CAT. They are a pension fund that was investing in Grupo Televisa. And they had alleged to the court um, that they had lost uh, just shy of a million dollars um, through their Grupo Televisa shares. One problem, though. During discovery and the, the, the process to certify this class of investors, it came to light that CAT also had shares uh, in a different investment fund that had actually shorted Grupo Televisa. And by shorting it, they actually got about $11 million in profit when the stock tanked. So again, you have the company arguing in one brief that it lost a million dollars, while in other evidence has serviced that it actually gained $11 million through the same scandal. So that is sort of what led to the, to the uh, uh, misalignment there. That is a... Uh that is a mis material distinction. Yes. Uh, you would think <laughs> yeah. you would think they would disclose that. Yeah. Um and I mean that's that's basically a death knell if you're trying to be the lead plaintiff in in a securities case. Um without getting too deep in the weeds about um certifying class, um the court had actually already removed cat 
as the lead plaintiff um, in this case after this revelation, saying that because they gained so much from this uh, from this short position that they couldn't sufficiently represent the interests of the others in the class. This often well, uh, deals with typicality and commonality. Of yeah, that. and that's what's interesting here that that you know there's 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 the the company itself, the pension itself, and then yes. the law firm, which I right. know we get into in this week's order. Yes, right. So yeah, the, the the company had already been deemed like not a suitable candidate to lead the class, um, but Robbins Geller was still in position as the as lead plaintiff's counsel. So for the other investors that may be lead counsel, um, and the judge was sort of reviewing this disparity between the documents that they submitted to the court and the others that came out. Um, the firm tri- the firm tried to argue that. Um, its profit from this short position in this other, or that the the, the client's uh, profit was kind of remote, and it was made by this entity that it didn't really control, and there's an, an arm's length distance between that. The judge simply was not having it. Um, he saw he thought that the the firm deliberately misled the court by not giving it a complete financial picture that only came out later, and he put it uh, pretty bluntly. He wrote, uh, quote, in the world of securities law, that is a definition of fraud. So uh, tough, tough break for the, for the firm there. Uh, he went on to say that, quote, Robbins Geller's willingness to submit so misleading a brief in order to obtain a result for its client, which it predictably might not obtain if all relevant facts were addressed, uh, disqualifies it from continuing as counsel in this case. So um, a pretty quick uh, and easy dispensing uh, of the factual issues there. Yeah, it's not good for them on the case and it's not good for them long term. That's that's not a good look for a law firm to... No. Uh, you yeah. know, I, th- I, I think I think from the outside, I, at least when we were heading into this story, you know, I didn't know much about it. I thought maybe there was some distinction that the client had misled them and that they didn't know. But um, but yeah, not a, not a great look. No, they and they 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 had sort of tried to, like I say, argue their way around it using some some. But they, but, but they didn't deny the factual claim that it wasn't disclosed. Right. I mean, there was no sort of miscommunication, but like you say, between the, the client and the firm. Um you know, this grew out of a uh, this grew out of a dispute over soccer broadcasting rights. Bill, I know you played some soccer in your day. This is a pretty big red card for Robbins Geller. Am I right, buddy? Wow, um, that, that is an absolute just so, pro move just yeah. now by you. I mean, well, I'm in awe. I'm in awe over here. Yeah the 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 judge was writing it down in the little book, and they were and they were uh, taken off the pitch. Um, I thought it's especially meaningful just in the if you want to do the sort of inside baseball, inside soccer, uh, uh, you know, litigation um, gossipy move where they are a boutique that specializes in securities class actions. This would be a huge embarrassment, I suppose, for any firm who was working on this case. Um, But when you make your name like litigating cases like this and a judge says you have basically committed fraud on the court, uh, I can imagine it stings uh, maybe even a little bit more. Again, this week's Pro Se is brought to you by Casefleet. Experience a better way to build winning cases with Casefleet's case management software. Casefleet provides lawyers with tools for reviewing evidence, organizing facts, and identifying trends that would otherwise remain hidden. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at casefleet.com law360 and get 10% off your first subscription.
We like to end our show with something offbeat, and this one that Alex is about to tell you is like a. It's I couldn't decide if it was if it was Veep or if it was Succession or, <laughs> it, but it's it's out there. Yeah, something something maybe in between. Um, this is frankly it's a it's a relatable case. I mean, who among us has not been stiffed on a legal bill by the Secretary of State? Mm-hmm. I mean, I I I think we've all been there. Yeah, uh, that's exactly what is at the center of the suit that we're talking about this week. Uh, former U.S. ambassador to the European Union, a man named Gordon Sondland, um, has sued former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo for stiffing him on a one point eight million dollar legal fee bill, um, which stems from Sondland's testimony um, in the first impeachment proceeding of uh, former President Donald Trump. He was kind of a I know that feels like a million years ago. This is this is uh, impeachment part one. Uh, Sondland was kind of a bombshell uh, witness in that proceeding, and, and yet was, I don't I don't remember any of it. Yeah, it's all just um, sort of gotten memory hold at this point. Yeah, yeah. So um, there's a lot of different stuff going on with this case. Um, it's obviously just kind of optically funny because it's two very high ranking diplomats uh, that will maybe be arguing over a very hefty legal bill over a politically charged uh, quasi-legal um, mm-hmm. proceeding. Um, so as a factual matter, Sondland is saying in, the, in his suit um, that Pompeo gave him a verbal commitment that he would pay his legal fees and later reneged on that commitment. Bro, you told me that you, you were going to pay me. He should have sent him a Venmo request, like a really yeah. passive, like, you know, passive aggressive, just like no note on it, just, hey, I need my 1.8. Honestly, I it's this is pure speculation on my part, and we're just talking about a complaint, so all the all the usual hedges apply. That might have happened. I don't know. Maybe it'll come out in discovery. Yeah, I really great, can't say. Honestly, great point. So, but we'll see. Uh, so, a couple things to untangle. So, the the extent to which a verbal commitment is binding in in, in court is kind of a complex contract law question. Even when the two people involved are not two of the highest ranking uh, diplomats in the U.S. government. But beyond that, there's quite a bit more going on, as you might expect, from something that is basically a holdover from the Trump era. And that is that Sondland basically says that the reimbursement offer disappeared because he gave testimony on Capitol Hill that damaged Trump. Namely, he testified under oath that Trump told him to pressure Ukrainian officials to investigate uh, Biden and Trump's political right. rivals in Europe. That was the, and that's basically like the genesis of the first uh, impeachment proceeding. And he basically, Sondland basically went before Congress and said, yes, a quid pro quo exists. Uh, Trump was later impeached, not removed from office, as, I'm, as I think we, uh, most of us remember. Um, he was fired soon after that testimony, Sondland was, and he received only about $80,000 in legal fees from the government saying the government said, you know, cited this law that puts a cap on how much it can reimburse out of pocket legal fees and has basically been fighting to recoup this ever since. Um, and he's, he basically sees the whole thing as, as political retribution. He thinks, you know, I, he doesn't quite come out and say this in the complaint, but sort of in the negative space of the complaint, you can see him saying, maybe if I had testified something a little differently, a little more friendly, right. maybe I get this money back. You got to get some paper on this. You know, if someone agrees <laughs> yeah. to pay your legal bills, you got to yeah. be an email or something. I thought, well, well, well the other thing that kind of stood out to me, and I, you know, 
I know that he uh, he retained Paul Hastings um, and then uh, another so- smaller firm to help him prep. Um, and I remember thinking, like, $1.8 million kind of sounded like a lot of money for Seems something that, that wasn't... Um, it's not litig. It's not complex litigation, and it's not a deal. It's testimony prep before right. Congress, and that's basically all they were doing, according to the lawsuit. Again, just an allegation. Uh, the government wouldn't turn over um, sort of crucial documents that were necessary, and so apparently his private counsel had to like kind of recreate an evidentiary record yeah. out of like d- like sparsely available public documents, which I guess. Ran up the bill to uh, just shy of two million dollars, which is uh, quite a bit of money to uh, to rake in. Well, what's uh, what's what's Mike got to say about this? What is <laughs> what is Pompeo said about these claims that Big Mike? He, yeah, that he was that he offered this to to repay these fees. Uh, just a short rebuttal at this point, only just a just a press statement. He said it was ludicrous. That's a that's a direct quote, and he said he was mm-hmm. confident that a court would see it the same way. Um, what a lot of people. There's the, the 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 scuttlebutt already has been that you know it was it will be interesting if it got legs and there were discovery orders right I mean that's sort of beyond the beyond the central legal question of whether or not Mike Pompeo owes Gordon Sondland two million dollars in legal fees almost is almost secondary to like ooh how much might we peep behind the curtain of what they were trying to keep quiet in this first impeachment proceeding but. Well, it's uh, also oh, yeah. Yeah. It, he's he's suing uh, he's suing Pompeo himself. Yes. Well, he's that's I'm glad you asked that. He's leaving open a couple of different uh, legal options. He has sued both the government and Pompeo in his personal capacity because he's saying Pompeo um, Pompeo promised to pay him back the fees. Right. But if he actually didn't have the and and and, and if he has the power to even do that, then the government should be on the hook for that. Mm-hmm. If he misrepresented his authority to even pay that money, then it should come out of Pompeo's own pocket. So Got he it. actually did cover both of those sort of lines of argument. Um, but, you know, um, like I say, this is just a couple of diplomats um Slugging it out over a legal bill, um, which uh, it's a classic again, fact pattern. You see it a lot. Yeah, yeah. So uh, look forward to to seeing more uh, what 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 trickles out about this one. Um, but uh, if uh, if you don't have anything else, I think uh, we have successfully once again steered the plane away from the mountain, and I'm ready to bring it in for a landing. If you are, we made it. We okay. uh, we survived. The show's over, uh, <laughs> but life will go on. Yeah, I think so. Um, hoping for that uh anyway uh thank you bill um and uh we will see everybody again next week as always we have a bunch of people to thank for this week's show want to thank our producers kelly marcano and steven trader as well as our graphic designer chris yates contributing reporters for this week are matt perlman zach zagger and Corey atkinson music for the show comes from silent partner and kelly marcano If you like Pro Se, please leave us a written review on your favorite podcast platform. We appreciate the confidence boost, and it really helps other people find the show. If you want to read more about anything that we talked about today, just head to our website at law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you back here next week.